page 691 in the church uh, Bibles. Uh, you might also want to uh, turn to page 966, Matthew 1 and 23, which we will eventually make reference to. Now, it's uh, always uh, important to place uh, any passage that we read within its historical uh, context, uh, and I'm going to try and do that before we read the first uh, 10 verses or so from uh, Isaiah 7. Uh, there will appear, there has appeared on the screen uh, a map, which I hope will be of some help. Uh, the Assyrian Empire uh, spread out from uh, present-day Iraq uh, and expanded its borders in a quite ruthless uh, fashion. Uh, Syria, uh, which will be called Aram in our text, and Israel, which is called Ephraim in our text, that's the northern kingdom, they formed a defensive coalition uh, to stand against the might of Assyria and Judah had been invited to join them. And King Ahaz had a look at the size of Assyria and the look of the size of uh, Syria and uh, Israel and his own little kingdom of Judah and said, uh, not on your life. And as a result of that, the northern coalition advanced against uh, his little kingdom of Judah and the city of uh, Jerusalem in uh, particular. So that's the historical background. Let's uh, read uh, Isaiah 7 and verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. So we're in a siege situation. Now, the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then God said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and uh, of the son of Remaliah, Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's Re son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people, 
The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Now, central to this whole passage, the verses I read and the verses that David read earlier, is the sign that God gave or offered to give uh, to Ahaz, uh, first rejected and then imposed. And understanding the significance of this sign for the people of that age and for the people of the time of Jesus' birth and for ourselves today is of uh, utmost importance. Uh, but before we examine God's sign, it is, I believe, important to note that some signs can say two quite different things, depending upon where you stand in relation to them. For example, many shops have a little sign hanging on their front door, and from one side it reads open, and from the other side it reads closed. What you read and the message that it imparts depends upon which side of the door you happen to be standing. Uh, and that's a truth that King Ahaz is about to discover. As we look at these verses, uh, I want, uh, first of all, for us to focus on the big issue, which is faith in God in crisis. Uh, secondly, focus upon uh, God's use of signs. And thirdly, uh, say something about uh, the sign God gave and its double uh, fulfillment. But let's uh, turn to the first of these, focusing on the big uh, issue. Uh, and to say something, first of all, about the state of the king and of the nation. The death of King Uzziah some 20 years previously uh, mentioned in Isaiah chapter 6 marked the end of Judah's political stability, territorial expansion, and material uh, prosperity. And King Ahaz proved to be a poor leader and an even worse spiritual example. For example, this is the king who publicly sacrificed his sons to Molach, the uh, idol, the foreign idol that was worshipped from time to time uh, in Israel and surrounding uh, nations. Uh, that's the kind of man that we have here. Now, we read that news of the Northern Coalition's advance was a crisis that was going to test Ahaz's confidence in God. Uh, and one wonders, did he, for example, think, we mentioned Psalm 27 earlier, did he think, wouldn't it be good uh, to lead 
the city in singing a few verses of this psalm, for example. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. Uh, Inverted commas in God. Well, no, he didn't do that, did he? Uh, Far from it. He uh, hit the panic uh, button. You see, when the rubber hits the road, uh, and that can be warfare or danger, bereavement or unemployment, financial ruin, broken relationships, then these are points in our lives at which our confidence in God is tested and we show either to have confidence in him or a lack of it. In these opening verses, we see too something of God's encouragement and command. While Ahaz is supervising the readiness of the city's water supply for the siege that was about to take place, God tells the prophet Isaiah to take his son and meet the king, uh, his little toddler, about three years of age. Uh, Now, the symbolism of biblical names is often lost uh, on us. Uh, And we wonder, what on earth is going on here? Uh, For example, Isaiah, his name means Yahweh is salvation. Wow, God is a Savior God. Uh, While at the same time, the name Shear Jashub given to his son, it's not a name that I recommend that you give to your son, but there we are. That's the name that was given to his son. God told him to name him that. It means a remnant will return. Now, here is Ahaz poised to make what will be the most momentous decision in his life. Will I trust God or will I trust in myself, basically? And along comes God's walking billboards, because that's what Isaiah and his son really were. And they were saying, can you trust God in this situation to be Savior? Can you trust him, Ahaz? Uh, A failure to do so points attention uh, to the billboard child. A remnant will return, a visible reminder that God would never depart from his people. And in the eventuality that they would be taken into captivity, deported, God's work still remained safe in God's hands. The child's presence, if you like, was shouting out, God can be trusted with the future. God can be trusted. And then 
Isaiah is told to speak God's message into this situation, and we have it in verse 4 following. Be careful. Keep calm and don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. In effect, these nations are spent forces. Don't worry about them. Now, this isn't the kind of keep calm message uh, found printed on coffee mugs. I managed to Google a few of these messages this week. So we have uh, keep calm and do the impossible. Uh, Keep calm and believe you can do it. Keep calm and fulfill your dreams. These are messages that simply promote wishful thinking, nothing else. The essential difference here is that the faithful, sovereign God is speaking into this situation of crisis and saying, because of who I am, keep calm. God, of course, had a proven track record. God had delivered his people from Egypt. You may remember when the Israelites stood with their backs to the Red Sea and the the Egyptian chariots were bearing down upon them. What did God say? Stand still and see the salvation of God. Look at the chariot! Stand still and see the salvation of God. And of course, the waters parted. We know the story. On arrival in the land of promise, God had delivered them from their enemies time after time after time. And so, he's not a God of empty words. This is a God deserving of his people's trust. And the simple choice is, Ahaz, trust in the bare word of God's promise for deliverance or you can trust in the plan of your own devising. Ahaz faced a simple test, but it was one of considerable magnitude. Uh, Here is a test, take note, students, here is a test where there would be no resets. Uh, I've often spoken to students who feel they've done badly in their exams, and they say, but there's always the resets. Well, here is a test in which there are uh, no resets. An invisible line is drawn across people's lives, making the point that when they have over and over and over again rejected the grace of God, God stops trying with them. There is such a time in the lives of individuals. In Genesis 6, God says, my spirit will not always strive with man. There comes a time, says God, when you cross the boundary where my grace is available to you. I think of what Paul says in uh, Romans, uh, where he speaks of God giving them up because they had suppressed and rejected God's revelation of himself. There is a line that is drawn. And this uh, big issue of trust was one that uh, carried uh, 
not a government health warning, but God's health warning. Verse 9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Well, what is he has going to do? He's reluctant to embrace God's promise. He's reluctant to trust in the proven track record of God. And I find it absolutely incredible, marvelous, that God is as condescending to Ahaz as he is here in verse 11. God knows that Ahaz's profession of faith is tenuous at best. And so he bends over backwards to strengthen and encourage the development of believing faith. And Ahaz is told to ask God for a sign. Ask me for a sign, Ahaz. Now, in general, God's signs are not given to persuade unbelievers to become believers, uh, but in order to strengthen fragile com commitment where it exists. Uh, you remember Moses was given signs in his desert exile to convince him to return to Egypt as God's chosen deliverer. God was given, uh, Gideon was given signs to persuade him that he was God's choice to defeat a vastly superior Midianite army. And God's appeal here to Ahaz says, in effect, Ahaz, I am prepared to move heaven and earth in order to strengthen your confidence in me. There, there are the boundaries that God sets. There are no greater boundaries. Because anything, as high as the highest heaven, as deep as the depths uh, that are imaginable, ask, and I'll give the sign. What an offer. And it's because God genuinely cares about the response that we make to Him. He longs uh, for wholehearted trust, and He'll close in upon us to impress his faithfulness in order to secure that trust. A friend of mine was uh, billeted with three Christians during national service. Now, if you're under 75 this evening, you probably haven't a clue what national service is. Uh, so, uh, ask me afterwards. But he was billeted with these three Christian friends. He himself was an avowed atheist. But the conduct of these Christians uh, challenged constantly his uh, position. And when he could bear that inner struggle no longer, uh, he bowed down at the side of his bedside and he prayed something like this, Oh God, if you're real, and I'm not really sure that you exist, please will you reveal yourself to me, and if you do, I will serve you all the days of my life. And God made himself known to him 
that evening. You see, God does bend over backwards in order to see faith generated in our hearts. Well, uh, did Ahaz jump at this offer of the sign? Verse 12 says, uh, he didn't want to put God to the test. You know, I'm, I'm much too much too mature in my faith to do such a thing. What sanctimonious humbug uh, he's speaking here. He was too cowardly to come right out and say, my mind is already made up. I know what I've chosen to do, and I intend to shape my own destiny. Thanks very much. Of course, it is wrong. Uh, to test God in a way that says, I will trust you if you prove yourself trustworthy, treating God like some kind of performing seal when you promise to reward uh, with faith uh, if uh, some trick is executed. But to refuse a sign that God wants to give is to expose one's own rank unbelief. Uh, we read in John's Gospel in chapter 12 and verse 37, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. I find it impossible to uh, read through John chapter 11, which describes the raising of Lazarus from the dead and not to be thoroughly perplexed to read that those who viewed that, some of those who viewed that, went back to Jerusalem and began to plot Jesus' death. What a remarkable sign God had given them. The dead uh, and uh, there was a doctor's certificate, I'm sure, three days old, to say, this man is definitely dead, the dead raised to life. Well, the pride of Ahaz refused to allow him to abandon confidence in himself. And there's no greater danger than to have a good opinion of oneself and a bad opinion of God. And that's what we've got here. So that Ahaz is saying to God, I believe I can handle this life and death situation better than you. The safe ground in a situation such as this is to trust in me. All other ground I'm not interested in. Trust in me. Well then, his plan, of course, was to send to Assyria for help. And he thought, this is an astute move in my part because the message I'm going to send will read something like this. Uh, Can you please come to my assistance because Syria and Israel are attacking me. I'm under siege. Why? Because I refused to join them against you. I didn't want to be your enemy, and I'm in these sore straits because I refused to help them against you. Wow, he must have thought, there's, there's a good way to make sure that you keep Judah safe. That kind of message is going to surely impress uh, the Assyrian emperor. 
Well, uh, clearly, Ahaz didn't have a geology degree, for he thought sinking sand was safe, and that's really where he was standing, on sinking sand. Ahaz, by rejecting God's sign, didn't make it disappear. What was originally offered as a sign of hope and salvation now becomes a sign of judgment for him, but a sign of hope and salvation for others. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. It's going to be imposed upon you. You've rejected the anything in heaven or earth uh, offer, and so the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you'll call his name, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And this imposed sign uh, contains a double fulfillment. First, regarding Ahaz's own day. Secondly, for the distant future concerning the birth of the Messiah. Now, a great deal of ink has been shed over this verse, uh, particularly whether the Hebrew word Alma should be translated as virgin or as young woman. Now, without listing the lengthy arguments that are brought to bear, it seems to me uh, that even if Alma is restricted to a young woman of marriageable age and of moral purity, then in practice we are speaking of a virgin. That is a virgin. That is a virgin. Yes, there's another word in Hebrew that says virgin, but Alma here is describing a virgin. Uh, the question has also been asked, what kind of miracle sign would have impacted on the Jewish community of Ahaz's day if the, if the text refers only to a child conceived in the normal manner? Is that going to cause people's jaw to drop? Say, wow, God has spoken. I think not. But, and I think it's an important but, does the sign point to the manner of the child's birth or to the Emmanuel name or to both? Who would name a child Emmanuel, which means God with us, if their world seemed to be crashing around the military defeat, uh, leading to financial ruin, physical deprivation, enslavement, possible deportation, uh, surely you would want to cry, God is not with us. Surely that's what the circumstances surrounding you would impress upon you. Naming a child Emmanuel in such circumstances is either foolhardy or an assertion of unshakable faith. The radical nature of the hardship uh, about to be experienced is spelled out for us in verse 16. The child will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Uh, we're talking toddlers here. 
He'll be on a privation diet. No fruit or veg, bread or meat. Why? Because invading forces will have confiscated or destroyed the crops and perhaps even salted the fields so that nothing grows. But to men and women of faith, this child's name is a sign of hope. Despite their dark and sore circumstances, despite their valley of the shadow of death experience, they are constantly reminded of the fact God is with us. God is with us. Oh, you see, that's unrealistic, really. In the crucible of their Babylonian captivity, Daniel's three friends were threatened with a fiery furnace for the refusal to worship the king's image. Uh, they affirmed their trust in the one to whom the sign name pointed, saying, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace and the God we are, that we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Then, as Nebuchadnezzar observes the furnace, he exclaims, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. I like to imagine, it's not recorded in Scripture, uh, but sometimes imagination can be healthy. I like to imagine the three friends shouting, Emmanuel, God is with us. Even here in this furnace, God is with us. Wow. Isn't that remarkable? Uh, I wonder if there are some here this evening who face their own uh, furnace situations. How we need to lay hold of the promise of God's presence in the midst of the bleakest of situations. Uh, we can expect God to fulfill His promise to be with us. He doesn't promise the absence of hardship or danger or difficulty, but He promises His presence. And now we need to lay hold of that. Thirdly, we turn to look now at the, the sign fulfilled. Uh, Matthew, in his gospel, uh, recognized the climactic messianic fulfillment of the words spoken in Isaiah 7.14. Now, he and his Jewish readership would have recognized that there were some parallels between Ahaz's day uh, and the hardships that they faced under foreign Roman rule. Uh, the straitened circumstances into which uh, the child was born, a child, remember, with royal Davidic blood pumping through his veins. Uh, Mary could get out the family tree, and this is uh, the point of the genealogy, and say, you know, actually, 
although my child's born in a stable, it could have been a palace. I belong to David's line. These are the straightened circumstances to which I'm reduced in great measure because of Ahaz's decision, by the way. These are the circumstances to which I'm reduced. I am of the royal line. Herod, uh, he, he, he bought his kingship <laughs> from the Romans. Uh, I'm of the royal line. Anyway, in Matthew 1 and 23, uh, Matthew quotes uh, the Isaiah passage, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel in support of the assurances that Gabriel had given Joseph concerning the miraculous nature of Mary's conception. But he is doing much more than providing a proof text for the virgin birth, which, by the way, he clearly affirms. His thought transcends the manner of the child's birth to the name the child is given, Emmanuel, God with us. Note the angel's words to Joseph a few verses earlier. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Here is the great climax of the Emmanuel child prophecy. Hitherto, Israel had experienced God with us, saving his people from danger through remarkable providence providences like the Red Sea, from uh, danger through brief visible appearances of theophanies, as happened in the fiery furnace. But in order to save his people from the greatest danger of all their sin, God would clothe himself with our humanity. What was needed was not simply a virgin birth, but an incarnation, God with us, in the person of his Son. God's rescue mission, as we were hearing this morning, involved him stepping into a situation of human helplessness and hopelessness in order to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Now, Jesus, the Savior's sign, would meet with contrasting responses, worshipped by wise men, hunted by Herod. What did Simeon say in the temple uh, concerning this Jesus? This child, he said, is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. A failure to recognize the seriousness and hopelessness of our sinful condition and pride in our own ability to chase down solutions of human manufacture is part and parcel of that revelation process. Revealing the thoughts of many hearts. Now, I don't know if you know, most of you may well know that St. Andrew's Castle uh, houses a bottle dungeon. 
It's unique in its design in that escape is impossible without help from outside. Oh, oh, climb the vertical wall uh, if you can, but when the bottleneck begins to turn, gravity takes over and splat. You get the picture. Time and again, prisoners have discovered they couldn't save themselves by themselves. They couldn't climb out. Now, just as gravity makes escape from this physical prison impossible, so too does the downdrag of our sinful natures make it impossible for us to escape from the prison of our sin. It's just not doable. But into this bottle prison, a rope is lowered. Help comes from outside. And by taking hold of that rope, we experience deliverance. Faith in Christ causes us to rise out of the hopelessness of our sinful condition. And Jesus can only lift us up because he first came down as Emmanuel. His sacrificial death on the cross manufactured the only escape route available to man. Faith in Christ secures escape. Now, uh, Kierkegaard, uh, the Danish philosopher, described faith as a leap in the dark, an uncertain response to an unknown invisible reality, a disengagement of our mind in favor of wishful thinking. But that's not true. Faith involves a committal to something that we have certain knowledge of. Let me try and illustrate that. When our youngest was uh, three years of age, we got a visit from Uncle Eric, who had been overseas as a missionary, and uh, she'd never seen him before, and he came for lunch, and after lunch, we went out for a walk, and uh, one of the things that uh, Louise loved to do as a three-year-old was to walk along tall walls. Uh, a hand held, of course, to keep her safe. But when she got to the end, she would jump off and get caught and put safely down on the ground. And on this occasion, she walked along to the end of the wall and Uncle Eric was there and said, okay, jump and I'll catch you. And she took one look at him and said, no way, daddy will catch me. You see, she didn't know this Uncle Eric. This was the first day she had met him. But she knew her dad. She'd experience of her dad. And she knew that he wouldn't let her come to any harm. And so she was quite happy to throw herself off uh, into his arms. Faith in God requires knowledge of God. How does that come about? Well, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. That's one of the reasons we encourage people to read Scripture, to come to church, to hear God's Word. Because in that situation, faith is created. It's not a jump in the dark. We're getting to know what God is like. 
Well, this evening, if you're not a believer in Jesus, I wonder how you might respond to the sign, Savior. Will you determine uh, to get to know him better uh, and find him to be one into whose arms you can confidently jump, uh, a rope to whom you can uh, eagerly cling ensured of the salvation that will be yours, or solid ground on which you can confidently stand. But remember, as Ahaz discovered, to reject God's sign Savior doesn't make the sign go away. They don't write God out of their personal histories. They simply reposition their stance in relation to the sign so that instead of reading salvation, it now sadly reads judgment. This God with us, Savior, who has stepped into our world is surely worthy of our trust, trust that grows as we get to know him through reading and hearing his word. If you're a believer this evening, and it may be that your life is beset by danger, difficulty, broken relationships, hardship, suffering, depression, the list is endless, is it not? And you feel yourself unable to step into the new year with a spring in your step because of these circumstances. Then remember the Savior in whom you have placed your trust. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He doesn't promise to remove all of those upsetting circumstances, but will be at your side in them. Nothing, I believe, delights the heart of God more than when we tell him, we'll trust you in the darkest night. That's when we'll trust you. When the rubber hits the road, in the darkest night, we will trust you. That's not a leap in the dark. It's a leap into the arms of a strong and a faithful Savior. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we confess that we are dumbfounded as we consider the great lengths to which you will go to see faith develop and created within our hearts. You are a God who bends over backwards, a God who is worthy of our trust, a God who brings deliverance from outside for we cannot deliver ourselves. 
a God who causes us to abase ourselves before you and acknowledge our indebtedness to you and pray that you would equip us uh, to serve you with uh, greater energy, firmer determination, dependent on the grace that you supply. Here as we ask, for Jesus' sake, amen.